Generation Church, family and friends, summer in South County is here. Hey, we hope you stay connected throughout the summer. Not only enjoy God, family and community throughout the summer, but you stay connected with Jesus, with church family. We can't wait to see you on Sundays as we continue to pray for more waves of revival in Rhode Island. And remember, church, it's not too late in Jesus' name. We were praying before the service, and um, folks who were you know, leading today were gathered around me, and they, they just prayed over me, and Scott prayed something really prophetic. He said, I thank you that we don't have expiration dates where we get thrown out of the refrigerator when we get to a certain date, right? So, you know, we're still, we're still going. I want to have us today soak in one of the greatest stories ever told. It's in the Bible, which is the greatest story ever told, which points to the one, Jesus, who is the greatest ever told, but particularly I want us to look at Acts chapter 26, and uh, we're not going to put it on the screen because we're going to read the whole section, a a story. It's particularly the defense statement of the Apostle Paul. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, Acts is volume two of Luke's writings in the New Testament. Overseen by God, we believe, in terms of bringing the scriptures together, the gospels tell us about the life, the birth, the life, the teaching, the ministry, the the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the book of Acts is Luke picking up and basically going from what Jesus has begun to do and teach to what Jesus is continuing to do, even to this day, through the Holy Spirit, through his mission Through the church, as flawed as we are, God continues to speak, continues to work, continues to change lives. We want to look particularly at uh, this incredible turnaround. We're calling this today the great turnaround. And it has to do with this man who was named Saul. He actually had a significant name change where God met him and changed his name to Paul. He became Saul, the persecutor of the church. Saul, the Pharisee, the strictest imaginable follower of Judaism, who felt the threat of Christianity as the way of Jesus. He didn't see it as the fulfillment that it was, but he saw it as the threat and had the authority of all of the Jewish hierarchy at the time to go and actually try to stamp out, to destroy this fledgling group called the way of Christ, the way of Jesus, the early church. So Acts takes about 30 years of early church history. Now, one of the unique things about this story that we're going to read, we're going to read Acts chapter 26, but it's one of three places in the book of Acts where Paul tells his story or his story is told. He, he speaks more than that in the book of Acts. But in particular, there, there's this, these places where we hear the story of the encounter and the dramatic turnaround that Paul went through. 
Now, we don't use the word conversion, perhaps, too much. You probably haven't talked to people and say, let me tell you about my conversion experience. It's a good word, though. I think we talk about conversion and things like, you know, I, I've, I think I'm going to convert from, uh, from Apple to Android. You know, really significant things like that. Um, we go to another country and we convert some currency, you know, things like that. But, but conversion is a word that has embedded in it the idea of a turnaround, of turning, actually turning in two directions. Conversion, a spiritual conversion, means you are turning from something or someone and turning to God, turning to Jesus. It's a turning from and a turning to. And there's so many beautiful metaphors that are used in Scripture to describe that, turning from darkness to life, light, from death to life, from being lost to being found. So here we want to look at the conversion story, as it were, of the Apostle Paul. This particular one, Acts 26, is the, is the third of three, and he's speaking to King Agrippa II. Now, if you remember, perhaps with Jesus, when he was being crucified, you had two dynamics going on. You had the Roman government that was, that was oppressing Israel. They were the ones in charge. And then you had the Jewish leaders, like the Sanhedrin, the, the, the elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests. They, from a religious standpoint, were trying to get Jesus killed. But they, because they were under Roman oppression, could not execute him, and so they had to go to who? Pontius Pilate. Almost everybody knows. More people have heard Pontius Pilate than they would know the emperors of Rome, right? So at the same time, fast forward 30 years, here you have another scenario where Paul is being brought uh, by Jewish leaders Wanting, them to, uh, wanting him to be killed because of what he's proclaiming. And so at the same time, Paul was a strict Jew. He was also a citizen of Rome, raised and taught in Tarsus, a wonderful city of, of the Roman Empire. And so Paul chose to insist on having the right to defend himself in front of King Agrippa, who was like the Jewish you know, uh, puppet king underneath Rome. Okay, that's, that's the history lesson for today. Okay, that's the context. So here you have uh, the Apostle Paul and, uh, and King Agrippa and the entourage around him and the crowd before him. He gives Paul the go-ahead to proclaim. Now, Paul asks right from the beginning of King Agrippa if he would, would listen with patience his story. I'm going to ask the same thing of you, because the, the, this chapter takes about four or five minutes to read. He probably spoke longer, but I realize in our soundbite Instagram world, listening to someone read for five minutes may seem oppressive, but you can do it. But I, I really want you to soak. I want you to give your attention. Think of, maybe put yourself as if we're in a courtroom drama and you're listening to the defense of the defendant. Okay? So here he goes. Agrippa addresses Paul and says, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. 
I consider myself blessed, King Agrippa, to have the chance to speak before you today in my defense concerning all the things of which the Jews have charged me, in particular because I know you are an expert on all matters of Jewish customs and disputes. I beg you, therefore, to give me a generous hearing. All the Jews know my manner of life. I lived from my earliest days among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known already for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I stand accused because of the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the hope for which our 12 tribes wait with earnest longing in their worship night and day. He's saying, I'm not doing something new. I'm doing something that's a fulfillment of all the promises that you all embrace. It is this hope, O king, for which I am now accused by the Jews. By the way, don't let anyone tell you that the New Testament or Paul was somehow like anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. When he says the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish leaders who had just mistaken and misinterpreted and sometimes maliciously twisted the teachings of God and put human commandments above the heartbeat of God's love and mercy. Then he says this, why should anyone, any of you, judge it unbelievable that God would raise the dead? The Pharisees, as Jews, believed that there would be a resurrection of the body. This is before Christianity. So he, he builds on that. I thought I was under obligation to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. I received authority from the chief priest to shut up many of God's people in prison. And when they were condemned to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them many times in, in all of the synagogues and forced many of them to blaspheme. I became more and more furious against them and even pursued them to cities in other lands. While I was busy on this work, Paul continued, I was traveling to Damascus. So you're talking about 150 miles maybe? Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria. Around midday, while I was on the road, O king, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the light of the sun, and shining all around me and my companions on the road. We all fell to the ground and heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, in the Hebrew dialect used in the day. Saul, Saul, he said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus speaking. It's hard for you, this kicking against the goads. What does that mean? Think of a horse with spurs trying to, to move the horse forward, and the horse is reacting. That's what Paul was doing. He was kicking back against God's getting of his attention. Who are you, Lord? I said. I am Jesus, and you are persecuting me. But get up and stand on your feet. I'm going to tell you why I have appeared to you. I'm going to establish you as a servant, as a witness, both of the things you have already seen and of the occasions I will appear to you in the future. I will rescue you from the people and from the nations to whom I am going to send you so that you can open their eyes to enable them to turn 
Notice the turn word and the from and the to. To turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they can have forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are made holy by their faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I didn't disobey this vision from heaven. I preached to the people that they should repent and turn to God. It's the turn word again. The works that demonstrate repentance. I preached it first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and the whole countryside of Judea and among the nations. That is the reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to slaughter me, but I have had help from God right up to this very day. Matter of fact, every time someone had to testify at the risk of their lives that they believed in Jesus, they were trusting in the promise that Jesus himself, recorded in Luke chapter 12, said. He said, don't be afraid when you are drawn, drawn before magistrates and kings and authorities because God, the, the Holy Spirit, will give you that very day the things that you should say. And Paul's trusting in that same thing. I have had help from God right up to this day, and so I stand here to bear witness to small and to great of nothing except what the prophets and Moses too said would happen. Namely, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light to the people and to the nations. The prophets always foretold that the Messiah that they were expecting was not just going to be a light to Israel, but that Israel was then going to be turned around. Those who would follow this Messiah would then be a light to the nations. This is, this is sort of, this is pretty cool at the end. As Paul was making his defense, Festus, the other ruler that was in the crowd, responded, Paul, uh, you know, he says, Paul, you are mad. All this learning of yours has driven you crazy. Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I am speaking words full of truth and good sense. The king knows about these things, and it is to him that I am speaking so boldly. I cannot believe that any of this has escaped his notice, and all of these things didn't happen in a corner. Do you? And he looks at King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? I know you believe them. And then King Agrippa says, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian? And in such a short time, you expect this speech is going to make me a Christian? Paul says, whether quick or slow, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today will become just as I am, except for these chains. The end of the story is that you know, King Agrippa, as well as others who had heard Paul, said so, so we had nothing on this man worthy of death. But Paul had done something in the process of this defense. <laughs> he had demanded to make his appeal to Rome. And so Agrippa was hearing his story before he sent him to Caesar. And all of this is in the sovereign will of God because one of the things Paul wanted more than anything else was to someday get to Rome, the center of it all, right under the nose of the emperor, and to continue to feed that fledgling church that had already been started there. Incredible story.
Now, what I'd like to do from here on out is to ask the question, what does this have to do with you and me? Is this story of this great turnaround of Paul, is this so much of a one-off? Is this so unique and once, for, you know, at all time that it really is nothing that we can relate to? Well, in some ways, yeah, it's, it was pretty unique. I haven't met too many people who have been, you know, knocked onto the ground, blinded, and hear a direct voice of Jesus who says you're now going to be the apostle to the whole world. Anyone had that experience? No. But, very much on the contrary, there are all kinds of important central teachings and, and principles and applications that apply directly to us, to our story, and to how we share the story with others. Okay? So, strap on your belts. We're going to do this pretty quick. Just going to give you a few and throw in a story uh, along the way. Okay, so what are some implications of this great turnaround story of Saul becoming Paul and us today? The first one is, just like Paul, we too can get personal with Jesus. I, I use that somewhat colloquial phrase. I'm not trying to be too familiar there. But did you notice how Jesus made it personal? With Paul? He didn't say, Paul, please open up your Bible. Let me explain to you more fully. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was being persecuted. When you persecute God's people, you are persecuting Jesus. Just as he says in, in Matthew, the Bible says in Matthew, that when we care for those, the least of these, and those who God cares about, the orphan and the widow and the lost and the young and, the, and those far from God, we are ministering to Jesus. One of the things that, uh, as I reflect back on my own story of, of becoming a follower of Christ in a more clear way, um, a couple things always stand out to me. One is... Um, Telling your story is a powerful thing. It's part of what God uses in our lives. Here's someone else's story of how they, like Paul, had a turnaround. The thing I noticed, and when I got to college, I was in, in a campus ministry, and one of the things that we, that we were encouraged to do was actually take some time to write out your story. And, and knowing that everybody's story is totally different, right? I can remember when I had the students at URI, when I was in campus ministry, I had people do that. And I remember one... One young girl named, young woman named Pam had been raised in an incredible Christian family. She had grown up sort of loving Jesus, and she loved the church. And now she was in college, and she wanted to bear witness to Christ, to others, as she had that opportunity and the hope that was in her and so on. But she says, to, to write out my story sounds really blah. I mean, I don't have this really exciting story. And I said, Think about this. In some ways, your story is what more and more of our family's stories should look like. When you get married and you have children, I hope that they don't have to go through 
a dramatic conversion of having you know, been lost and in despair and, and gone down a, a, a track that you know, is self-destructive. But you know what? I don't care if you, if you feel like you've never strayed from loving Jesus from the day you were born. <laughs> you still have to get to that place where you make it your own. You make it, it's your story. You're not living on your parents' story, as wonderful as that is, great, as great models as they could be. You have to make it your own. And for me, I realized every time I wrote my story, I realized I'm starting earlier. I thought it was 14, and now it's 13. I remember that. Now I remember something earlier. Matter of fact, I was singing in church at age six. It's like God was working. God's always speaking, right? But there does come that place very often where we have to say yes to God. For me, it was walking on the farm in the moonlight night. I had been reading the scriptures and falling in love with Jesus and the way of Jesus. And I was, but I was still trying to sort of work it out on my own, change my own heart, recognizing my needs. And it was this cross-shaped you know, moonlight, not a, not a cross coming to, the, to me, but the moonlight broken like a cross, that I was actually reflecting on the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And I remember saying specifically, I understand that you died on the cross for me. I understand that that has great significance. I just don't quite understand where I come in. What does that have to do with me? And the answer that, that really came in that process of reflecting on that, it was like God saying to me, you've been trying to carry this thing yourself. You've been trying to carry the load of your, of your own sense of need and sinfulness. You've been trying to, to figure this out all in, in, your, in your head. This isn't about what you need to do more. This is about what I did for you. Will you receive it? I don't know if, you ever, if anybody's ever looked at Pil- Red Pilgrim's Progress, but it's an allegory where Christian, as he's walking up the mountain, he sees the cross of Jesus and the load on his back, which is like a backpack filled with rocks of his, of his sin and guilt and burdens, come rolling off as he sees the cross and down into a pit never to be seen again. Okay? So there's a little bit of that for me. It's like, oh, So now I can live the Christian life not in order to gain God's approval, but because he's forgiven me, now it's all about gratitude. Someone has said becoming a follower of Jesus is all about grace, undeserved favor of God's work for you, what he's done for us. Living out the Christian life is all about gratitude. It's gratitude. I don't serve God now. I serve God because, you know what? The good news, the gospel, is really good news. He's taken us from a place of of trying to find our own satisfaction, a place where all of us are made in the image of God, and yet we're all cracked and broken. And he says, I want to restore the shalom. You know what shalom means? We think of what? Peace, right? But it means more than that. It's well-being. Earlier in the summer, Scott spoke about happiness. Aristotle had a great word, eudaimonia. You know what the best word for the modern word for for that happiness is? Shalom. And the ancient word shalom. 
Our modern word, best modern equivalent, is flourishing. God wants us to flourish. So God turns us around. He's in the turnaround business, not only for his glory, but for our good, for our shalom, for our flourishing. And not only for that, but so that we might participate with God in the flourishing of needy people all around us. So, so the first thing we can say, I think, is that uh, just, like, just like Paul, we can have a personal encounter with Jesus. More I can say about that, but let's go on. Number two. Um, secondly, I think this shows us that uh, we too, like Paul, can have a revelation from God. God can reveal and make clear to us the nature of our great need. God makes known to us our need. Now, we feel our need in all kinds of ways. Even if we, we could care less about things spiritual, religious, or Christian, we, we know we're needy, but sometimes we don't fit that into the story as to why. But God made it clear that Paul was going in the opposite direction of all the fulfillment that was coming together in Jesus Christ. I forgot to mention one thing. Someone has rightly said that in our sort of um, skeptical world, if you are going to dismiss authentic Christianity, Christian faith, if you're going to dismiss it outright and say it doesn't, isn't worthy of my attention, if you want to do that rationally, you've got to explain away two things. One is the resurrection of Jesus. Somehow you've got to disprove what many would say is if at least unprovable and best very much proved. The story of the resurrection is the center core teaching of the apostles. They lived and they died, as Paul was doing in this story, on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We could go off on that, but let's go to the second one. What's the second thing you must explain away, someone has said? said, you have to explain away the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Never in history have we seen someone so passionate, so much of an antagonist, so much of an opponent of a movement who then actually does an absolute 180 and turns around and becomes the world's greatest proponent. The one who is most advocating. Not only that, but God uses him to start all of the churches in the cities of the Roman Empire uh, that have continued and continue to grow throughout the world. All right? We have to cry out. What this story would tell me, too. We have to cry out to God, save me. I have nothing to save myself. One of the hardest things to overcome is to think that we have to do it ourselves or we can do it ourselves. That leads to the third implication. We too, like Paul, can trust the good news of Christ's grace and mercy. We can put our trust in the mercy and grace of God. This week, uh, last week, I'm uh, part-time as a chaplain at South County Hospital. And um, this week, I had a conversation. I had 
three conversations that often take place. I would say at least twice a week, I end up getting into conversation with someone who is really wrestling with an affliction. Sometimes it's a diagnosis that they have gone from what they thought was this illness to being told that this is a cancer, this is a terminal illness, or this is a life-threatening illness. And it's not something that they've been prepared to hear necessarily. Perhaps they haven't even gone to the doctor and they come and then all of a sudden they are told that they have pancreatic cancer, which is not something you want to Google because it's so, it's so serious and often very short. And so very often I'm sitting with someone, and this particular, we'll call her Joanne. I went into her room and I had read her notes, the notes about her, and she had just received a diagnosis of serious cancer. And uh, I'm, I'm so amazed at how God, just like uh, at the resurrection story, the angel says to the women, um, he is not here, he is risen, he has gone before you. Go into Galilee, there you will see him. Eugene Peterson, a famous, wonderful pastor, theologian, said that he used that phrase, that, that story, as a way of reminding him whenever he would have to have a, com- a difficult conversation or go to minister to someone, to realize that I'm not going by myself here. Jesus is with me. Jesus is alive. Jesus has already gone before me. Go there and you'll meet him. And so often I find in that encounter, within a very short amount of time, there's a bond. And I'm sitting sometimes because there's not an extra chair in the room. I sometimes am on, my, on one knee at the bedside to have eye contact, holding the hand of someone I just met five minutes ago. This particular Joanne... Uh, like many, had some church background and some, some faith, uh, religious faith in Christ, uh, but it was, it was pretty shallow, I would say, she would say. Uh, it wasn't something that she felt really confident about, and all of a sudden, she's faced with preparing for death. However, whether short or long, she recognized, this is going to take me, I need to get ready and so we started talking spiritually. What does that mean? What does it mean to prepare? And as I've often done, and this has become almost a pattern, it, I will take, take us back to the cross of Christ and the seven words that Jesus says from the cross. And here's a woman who probably hasn't, wouldn't say that she's a, a, a student of the Bible, but when I started to mention those seven words, she could rattle them off. Yeah, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I said, do you remember, do you remember the thief on the cross next to him? One thief says, you know, if you're the son of God, why don't you save yourself and us? The other thief, remember what the other thief said? Lord, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Which by direct inference, what's he saying? I know you're the king. I know you're the world's rightful king. And that's it. You know what Jesus said to him? Truly, truly, I say to you. You know what he said? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Get your head around that one. Because when death takes place, when Jesus died and rose again. You know, that's entering into the, another realm of eternity outside of our normal time frames. It's like, 
You're going to be with him in paradise? I thought you were going to be in the grave tomorrow, Jesus. <laughs> Mystery, right? But nevertheless, what he's saying is, you have been welcomed into my kingdom. You will be with me. That's it. You will be with me. But here's the, here's the clincher. For this woman and so many like her, and perhaps even in your own situation, we get bogged down thinking that it's about what we have done or overcoming ourselves what we have done or what we have had done to us. That thief had zero time to make amends for whatever he did wrong that the Romans wanted to crucify him for. He didn't have time to be catechized, baptized, join a church community. He had time to do nothing except say, remember me. Jesus accepted him. That's like the original deathbed conversion, as they sometimes, okay? But nevertheless, the power of that for this woman was to realize that this was not about her sense of guilt that she would hold on to until judgment, hoping that she was good enough. And I had to say to her at one point, I said, could I, could I gently provide some correction in your understanding of Christianity, of Jesus? Because you know one of the other things he said from the cross? It is finished. And I said to her, what do you think he meant? What's finished? And she thought for a minute and she said, his mission. Yes. His mission. What was his mission? The redemption of the whole world. Which means there is nothing that you and I can add to what Jesus has already done by which we can enter into relationship with him. That's good news. That doesn't mean, okay, you make some kind of decision to say yes to Jesus and then you don't care how you live. Quite the opposite. That's what baptism is all about, right? Baptism is like the outward drama of the, redemption, of, of the mystery of what's happened in your life where you're saying, I am saying goodbye. I'm saying old. I'm saying the old has died. The new has come. I have died with Jesus. I'm rising with Jesus. And I urge you to, to go take that baptism class. Go speak one-to-one if you're going to be out of town what is happening. But, but dive into that a little bit. Because on one level... Everything in our Christian life is a working out of that. And there's all sorts of little conversions that we have to do after the big one. <laughs> all sorts of little yeses after the big yes. Because God is in the change process. He's constantly transforming us more and more into his image. There's a couple more and I'll just name them and I want you to reflect on them. Okay, you can reflect on these yourself. Another, another way in which, like Paul, we too can answer the call of Jesus. We too can answer the call of Jesus to become his servant and to learn his ways and to serve with his power. Think about that. Think what Paul, think what happened to Paul. He was, he was, his eyes were open. He was baptized. Then he had to go back to the community that he had been persecuting. And here's where I wish I had the videotape. Because we think, it, oh yeah, he just moves on. The narrative of Acts just moves on. I think there was some big pauses there as the, as the Christians back in Jerusalem said, 
Oh, did you hear about Paul? Hear about Saul? Uh, you know, oh yeah, the guy that wants to exterminate us, right? Yeah, he's become a Christ follower. Yeah, right. Uh, I got to see it. Probably take a while. <laughs> but God made Paul the persecutor, Paul the brother. The, the last, the last uh, implication that, uh, that I was thinking about was that just like Paul, we too can bear witness to Christ's love wherever he plants us. We too have the privilege of bearing witness to God's love and the new life in Christ. Our stories are powerful. Tell the story. And sometimes your story is not just your conversion story. It's not just the story of how you came to a place of accepting his grace, which is vital and wonderful as that is. We also tell the story of, of the real doubts that we had or maybe even still have, the real questions, the suffering, the affliction that God has helped us through. Big part in my own coming to Christ was getting to know a family who had lost two of their three sons in tragic accidents and had not gone bitter, but had actually come, come closer to God and were wonderful, not, not smiley face testimonies, but real testimonies of how God brought them through the deepest kind of sorrow. That's where you can talk with someone who's going through affliction, where you can say, can I pray for you? Do you know how many times in six years I've had people say, no, I'd really rather you not pray for me? <laughs> Two. And that's in a world of increasing tendencies for people to be cynical and to say, I have no religious interest. You know the exciting thing that God gives us the opportunities for? You know, we've just gone through a couple years of talking a lot about being contagious, about about, uh, you know, having infections. <laughs> C.S. Lewis uh, once made this, uh, this statement. The gospel, it's like a good infection. And Jesus is the antidote for the sin we harbor and that destroys us. Humanity is, has been saved in principle. We individuals have to appropriate that salvation. But the really tough work, the bit we could not have done for ourselves, has been done for us. We don't have to work and perform to be counted worthy. That part is accomplished. Ours is to accept and be willing to be reborn in Christ, back fully to the image of God. If we get close to him, we will catch it from him. Folks, we are called to be the good infection that is contagious. <laughs> Let's be like a good infection. The people, but we have to get near, don't we? We have to get near to Jesus and we have to get near to people and care about them. We're going to end with a song that um, when I was here Thursday night just listening and praying and reflecting uh, they were singing the song, and I said, I'd really just love to, to reflect again and have you uh, hear this song. But just, just a couple thoughts as you reflect, and uh, we'll call this Next Steps. We mentioned um, baptism. For some, is an important next step. 
It's sort of the drama of your decision to follow Jesus. And again, it's a, it's a wonderful way of, of bringing this together. And again, Paul, Paul had all the training and teaching. He'd probably been washed in multiple ways in Judaism. But baptism was actually started by Jews talking to people who wanted to become Jews from being a Gentile. Baptism then was taken up in Christ. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit means that I'm incorporated into the very life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not the magic bullet. It's never disconnected from faith in Christ. But it's important. And for some, I think that's the next step. Let me just read one more thing. And again, I've used this sometimes at a bedside. But it's for all of us. It comes from a, a document, a, a group of Christians in the 1500s who took the words of Scripture and wanted to put it into a, a catechism, a way of teaching people the faith. And the first question is this. Listen to this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the evil one. He also watches over me in such a way that not a, head, a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the gratitude. So let's just close uh, our, our eyes, uh, reflect for a moment, and uh, let me just encourage you today. Sometimes turning from and turning to Christ is as simple as simple as the thief saying, Lord, Master, remember me. It's as simple as saying, yes. I give up the fight. I give up the false idea that I can save myself or that I'm good enough in myself or that another ways we sometimes feel I'm never going to be worthy or I'm too bad to even be redeemed by God. Let me just give you an infusion of the scriptures this morning. Let it be an infusion into your spiritual bloodstream of love and grace and hope and the words of Jesus that remind us again and again, I have done all that needs to be done for you to experience life as it was meant to be lived. I have done all for the forgiveness of sins, for the healing of your brokenness, and now we start fresh to learn my ways to follow what I command you to do 
when the Apostle Paul was meeting Jesus, he said two questions. Who are you, Lord? And then what do you want me to do? Those two questions will define our lives from here on out. Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you listen to his voice? Will you respond to his invitation? And then follow it up by learning the ways of Jesus, by getting more questions answered if you have those questions. But don't get bogged down in thinking that you have to solve all the answers. Come to Jesus who loves you. Keep Jesus the main thing. Don't get bogged down in the cynicism of of, uh, the very human institutions of the church. But keep Jesus at the center and let him change you from the inside out. And you and he together can tackle the hard questions and how it means what it means to relate to society and all those other questions just say yes to him thank you Lord meet us where we are in your name we pray Amen listen to this song